everyone there threw out his arm in the Nazi salute and burst into Deutschland über alles and then the Horst Wessel song. It was a pandemonium of patriotism. And Bonhoeffer and Bethge were pinned like beetles. At least Bethge was. Bonhoeffer, on the other hand, seemed to be a part of it. Bethge was flabbergasted. Along with everyone else, his friend stood up and threw out his arm in the Heil Hitler salute. As Bethge stood there gawking, Bonhoeffer whispered to him, Are you crazy? Raise your arm. We'll have to run risks for many different things, but this silly salute is not one of them. Bethke's extraordinary friend and mentor had schooled him in many things over the previous five years, but this was something new. It was then Bethke realized that Bonhoeffer crossed a line. He was behaving conspiratorially. He didn't want to be thought of as an objector. He wanted to blend in. He didn't want to make an anti-Hitler statement. He had bigger fish to fry. He wanted to be left alone and to do the things he knew God was calling him to do. And these things required him to remain unnoticed. Bethke said that one cannot fix a date when Bonhoeffer passed into being a part of the conspiracy in any official way. But he knew at that cafe in Memel, when Bonhoeffer was saluting Hitler that his friend was already on the other side of the border. He had crossed from confession to resistance. Bonhoeffer, Christian living in Germany during World War II, is one of the more famous Christian testimonies uh, that we like to discuss in the Christian church in America. Now, I'll be frank with you. I don't know as much about Bonhoeffer. There are probably people in this room who know far more about him than I do. So I'm not here today to, in any way, shape, or form, give uh, approval to everything he said, believed, or thought. I don't know everything he said, did, believed, or thought. But I found that chapter, which I read, an interesting chapter. Because what we know about Bonhoeffer is his, he was living in a day with a corrupt government, with an evil government, requiring evil things of the people. He began his life a pacifist. But we know that he ended his life a conspiratorialist. He ended his life as being part of the resistance. He had crossed a line at some point in time. And the reason I read this story is because I think many, many Christians have experienced something like this all throughout the history of the world. And believe it or not, it's so ancient, I believe, that some of our main characters in our text this morning experience it. If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 19. We are going to continue working through our sermon series through 1 Samuel. And today the Lord has given us 1 Samuel 19. If you would please read with me this entire chapter and follow along for these are the very words of God. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and said to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. 
For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow. Then, forgive me, so they fled before him. Verse 9, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Mishal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Mishal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Mishal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair on its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of the goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Mishal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Mishal answered Saul, He has said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped. He came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? The drama of 1 Samuel just never ceases to grip me. It is certainly not just the David and Goliath testimony that is entertaining and filled with drama in 1 Samuel. Almost every single chapter is quite entertaining. Let's put it this way. Chapter 19 is a compelling narrative filled with threats, rebellion, broken oaths, jealousy, conspiracy, espionage, deceit, family strife, miracles, and narrative irony. This is truly a gripping narrative that we just read. And if I were to summarize it, the way I would attempt to summarize it is that I want us to see in this text the way God uses His people to protect His people. God uses His people to protect His people. David is in trouble, and after being able to save himself, he goes through one brother and sister to the next to seek refuge, to seek aid, to seek help. God has his anointed one, and God is protecting his anointed one through the use 
of other believers, of his brothers and sisters. My hope is that, just as maybe almost a side note, we would see in this text our great need for one another. That we would see in this text our need for the power of Christian community. What would have happened to David had he not had a friend like Jonathan or a wife like Michal or a spiritual leader like Samuel? Do you see your need for one another? Do we see, do our children see their need to be in church all the days of their life? That as they eventually grow up and leave the house, they will always be in a perpetual need of Christian community. David was able to evade Saul himself for a little bit, but he was very much dependent upon the people of God to help him and protect him and establish righteousness. God has a diverse set of means he uses to protect us. The the text is structured, if we want to look at the structure of the text, the text is structured around David's four great escapes. There are essentially four attempted murders uh, on David's person, and four separate times David is able to escape. We see the first one in, well, really the whole beginning of the text, but look just with me at verses 3 through 6. Saul tries to put a wedge between David and Jonathan, and Saul brings his own son and his servants, and he illegally and sinfully desires to put an innocent man to death. He wants to practice capital punishment on an innocent man. He wants to kill David. And notice how Jonathan responds. In verse 3, Jonathan tells David to hide. And at verse 3, I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? So David's first escape comes from Jonathan. Jonathan petitions his father in a calm, respectful, honoring manner. He reasons with him practically, pragmatically. Why would you kill someone who's done nothing but good for you? Why would you kill someone who's only brought you good? He reasons theologically. And do you see that God used him to bring salvation in Israel? Are you, do you want to go against the plan of God? And then he even reasons with him morally. Why would you kill David, shed innocent blood, without cause? He tells them this is dumb, this is unbiblical, this is immoral. And it works, at least temporarily. Look at verse 6. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore... As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And then everything goes back to normal. So David first escapes death because his good friend and brother, not physical brother, but his spiritual brother, Jonathan, intercedes for him and rebukes the king, rebukes his own dad, and saves David. But then we know that there's another murder attempt. Because in verse 8, war happens again. So everything goes back to normal. Everything's fine again. David's back in the palace. You know, tensions are low. Things are good. But then there's war. And what does that mean? That means David's got to go out and fight. And what does that mean? He's going to win again. That's what we've seen the last few chapters. David doesn't lose, right? So he goes out and he's a war hero again. And so Saul is filled with jealousy again. And the, the, the harmful spirit from the Lord comes upon him yet again. And so we're basically back to square one. And Saul, yet again, in this fit of rage and jealousy, tries to kill David with a spear. Although David takes it much more seriously this time. Look at verses 8 through 10. 
There was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the liar, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. It is interesting that Saul would, in his rage, be so... Uh, What's, I'm trying to think of a politically correct word, but I can't, so I'll just say stupid. Uh, why would you want to fight in hand-to-hand combat with David? <laughs> Isn't this kind of dumb? You, you, you're, you're in this room together with a man who slayed Goliath and has fought at this point in many, many wars and has won all of them, and you gave a bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins, and he came back with 200 Philistine, Philistine foreskins, and you want to fight with this guy? My money's on David. But David respects the king. He does not fight back, but he is able in his skill and his athleticism to evade. But this time he leaves and he escapes. He, he knows better than after the first couple times. And he never comes back. So David sort of saves himself in the second attempt. But then there's a third attempt. Saul then sends out messengers to spy on David. Illegal espionage. And Michal, David's wife, is keen on this. She knows, and so she protects him. She knows that her ultimate allegiance is no longer to her father now, but to her husband. And so his wife comes up, just very similar to Rahab. We haven't uh, preached through uh, Judges, so we haven't read that. But Rahab, if you recall, I mentioned it when I preached the sermon on righteous deception. Rahab deceived the spies, or forgive me, she deceived the pol- basically the police officers of her days. She was harboring spies. The police came to their house, give us the spies. She said, yeah, they went that way, and then she let them go through a window. And this is kind of an illusion here, where Michal deceives the political authorities, and she sends David out of a window. She's crafty. She's deceptive. Look at verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair on its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. So David is sneaking out of a window, and she has some kind of household idol. We don't really know much about what this is. There would have been purposes for images in households other than worship. But we know at the end of the day that Israel was a largely very rebellious people that was oftentimes caught in worshiping other gods alongside Yahweh. So it's very possible that maybe Michal is worshiping another god. We don't know, but they have some kind of humanoid statue in their house. So she lays that in the bed. She puts some goat hair on it so it kind of looks like, you know, in a blanket. So she makes it look like there's a person sleeping in the bed. And the spies come and say, hey, we have a command from the king, an edict from the king. We are to bring David with us. She says, well, not now. He's sick. Right? And they look and they see someone laying in the bed. Okay, he must be sick. So they go back and report to Saul. What happens in verse 16? Or forgive me, verse 15. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. So Saul basically says, I don't care if he's sick in bed. Bring the whole bed if you have to. Get me David. So they go back and they discover, oh, she lied to us. David was not sick in bed. That's a lie. David is not here. She let him go. And so Saul confronts his daughter, who has rebelled against him, who has disobeyed her father and her king. 
Saul said, verse 17, to Mishal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Mishal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? I hate to speculate, but this is a verse that requires some speculation because it doesn't tell us where this answer came from. So basically what happened is Mishal now, in order to save her own life, the way she preserves her own life is she basically says, David made me. I I tried to keep him from leaving. I tried to keep him from leaving, but he said, I will kill you too if you don't get out of the way. So to save my own life, I I just decided to go with David. We don't know if if Mishal came up with that on her own because she was scared or if maybe David planned this. David loves her and says, I don't want you to get hurt, so just blame it on me. We don't really know. But she tells a second lie now to her dad and to her king. And this has really bought time. I doubt that they thought this was going to be a permanent solution, right? Like David's just going to be sick in bed for the rest of his life. I think this was just to buy time. So first, Jonathan saves David. Then David saves himself. Now Mishal has saved David. And then we see, look just briefly with me, verse 18. Where does David go as he is now homeless? As he is now a refugee? Verse 18, David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went to live in Naoth. So Samuel, he goes to his spiritual mentor. He goes to the spiritual leader of Israel, and Samuel accepts him. Samuel says, yeah, what the king is doing is wrong. Come, you come with me. I'll protect you. So now we have the spiritual leader of Israel at odds with the political leader of Israel. And we see that the Holy Spirit, through Samuel's authority, does effectively rescue and save David. Three different messengers are sent to look for David, and the Holy Spirit comes upon all of them and causes them to prophesy among this little worship center where Samuel is living. So they prophesy, and so Saul finally decides, well, if you want a job done right, I guess you got to do it yourself. So he goes, and the Holy Spirit of God comes over him and prophesies. Now, we need to understand this is one of the many evidences we have in the Old Testament that your English Bible, when it uses the word prophesy, has a much larger semantic domain. That word has a much larger definition than the very narrow way we define that term. The way we define the term prophecy is, is to either foretell the Word of God or to foretell specifically future events. I know something's going to come. I'm prophesying this will happen. And the Old Testament prophecy was more of just a general term for any kind of encounter with the Holy Spirit. It didn't have to be foretelling the future or knowing the Word of God. It was just any kind of spiritual experience, convulsion. And what we see here is that the Spirit is overwhelming Saul, overwhelming these messengers to some sense that it actually prevents them and keeps them from being able to do what they want to do. As a matter of fact, the Spirit comes upon Saul so intensely that Saul strips himself naked, which is a sign of shame. Saul strips himself down to shame and humiliation, and he is crippled, he is disabled all day and all night. He lays in shame and nakedness under the authority of Samuel's feet all day and all night. That is the kind of powerful, overwhelming spiritual impact that the Spirit is having on him. And we see it happening with Samuel. At Samuel's feet, the Spirit is working on behalf of Samuel. So Samuel, in his authority, has now taken David in its refuge. David evades Saul for a fourth time. 
By the way, just as a brief side note before we wrap all this together, you can write down in your notes, we won't look at it today, Psalm chapter 59. Psalm 59 is the psalm that David wrote in response to the spies searching in his house trying to kill him. So you kind of see David's heart and fear a little bit in Psalm chapter 59. And so what do we do with these four attempted murders, these four protections, these four rebellions? Well, here's kind of how I want us to understand this. The Lord will often protect us and deliver us through the lawful disobedience of legitimate authorities. The Lord will often protect and deliver us through the lawful disobedience of legitimate authorities. Why do I say that? I think it's inappropriate to miss the tension of this text. This is not just Jonathan and Mishal and Samuel protecting David. If that's all you see is Saul's trying to kill David and and Michal protects him, and Jonathan protects him, and Samuel protects him. We've missed something that's supposed to break our hearts. What is happening in order to protect David? Jonathan has to be opposed to and rebel against his father. Michelle, Michal has to be opposed to and rebel against her father. And both of them, alongside David and alongside Samuel, are now being forced. This was not their decision. Saul has forced their hand. They have now been put in a position where they must disobey their king. What we see in this text is the heartbreaking tragedy of a legitimate authority who has gone evil, a bad father and a bad king. That is supposed to break our hearts. By the way, Jonathan didn't just disobey. He committed treason. He committed treason. When Jonathan is brought into a secret meeting with the king and told, we have a war strategy, I have an attack plan, and he secretly tells the object of that attack plan what's coming, that's called treason. Do you know what would happen to someone in the FBI? If the president decided to bomb China and that person went home that night and called China and told them, by the way, we're bombing you guys at 12 a.m. tomorrow, how would we treat that person? That's treason. That's political rebellion. We cannot miss the gravity of this text. This is supposed to be the man that the children honor and respect and obey. This is supposed to be the man that the people of Israel trust and obey, and they have been forced by his hand to disobey. We learn that the Lord often has to protect us and deliver us, unfortunately, through a lawful disobedience of our legitimate authorities. Now, this is obviously a hot-button issue today. There are many Christians who feel that we're in somewhat of a similar circumstance today. And if you go on Facebook the last two years, you've seen people warring about this very issue. And so what I want to do with this text is I want to give us four principles for lawful disobedience. Now let me just admit right from the get-go, you might be worried, oh goodness, what is my pastor going to say? Or you might be excited, yeah, yeah, I'm so excited for you to be on my side. Admittedly, I don't want us to get too far upfield with this text I don't want to abuse it too much. And so these are going to be broad principles. So they may not be as specific as you would like them to be. 
And additionally, a lot of the specifics, and I'll cover this in our last point, I'm not even myself secure enough yet to preach from this pulpit. So these are probably not going to address specific contemporary issues the way you would like them to. But nonetheless, I think these are four important foundation stones that if we don't have these in place, we can't move forward in any direction at all. So let me just give us four principles for the church for lawful disobedience. And the first one is just that. The church has a responsibility to resist authorities that require us to sin. The church has a responsibility to resist authorities that require us to sin. That's why I call it lawful disobedience. This is kind of uh, an ironic term. This is a paradoxical term, right? How can you be lawful in disobedience? Disobedience is unlawful. In other words, you could think of this as obedient disobedience. Why? Because we have a responsibility, not just the opportunity, not, not just permission, but a mandate, a responsibility to resist any authority that will require us to break God's law. We need to understand that there is no earthly authority that is a law unto themselves. This was a famous phrase in many of the monarchical structures of the ancient world. In Europe and other places, the king was considered a law unto himself. What did that mean? It meant the king was above the law. It meant the king was the law. So if the king is the law or if the king is above the law, then the king can do no wrong. Because whatever he does is lawful because he is the law. There's no law above him that he is seeking to be in obedience to. He is the law. And that was the perspective for many political rulers throughout the history of the world. That is the perspective of many political rulers, people seeking power in our world today. But that is patently unbiblical. There is no earthly authority that is a law unto themselves. Every earthly authority, including the legitimate ones, still have a higher law above them that can trump them. In order to really get this, let me just remind us, what are the legitimate authorities? I keep using that term. The Bible has instituted government. Government is good. Government is a blessing. We thank God for authority. We thank God for government. In Scripture, government authority is good. I could preach a whole sermon on why, but let me just briefly remind you that authority and governance existed before the fall. There are many people who describe the civil government, for example, as a necessary evil. I, I don't think that's biblical. The idea is if everyone was perfect, we would have no need of government. I don't think that's biblical. I think even in a perfect world, we would still have government because God loves government. He loves delegating authority. It existed before the fall. In a non-sinful world where there was no sin, we had a structure of authority and governance. Government is good, and God has established different kinds of government for different ends. The first and most ancient government is the family. The family is actually a governmental system. There is a, what we call the family governance. And we see that because there is a system of authority built into the family. Children are commanded in the New Testament and in the Old to obey their parents. Children have governors. They have bosses. They have people they must answer to and submit themselves to. Children, obey your parents. Hus or wives, submit to your husbands. 
So the husband is seen as the head of the family. He's the king, if you will, of the family. And the wife is a lesser authority, but she still has full authority over the children. So within the family, we have a governmental system. We have a system of submission and obedience. And by the way, this is more complicated in ancient days because hallelujah, by the grace of God, in all of the Western world, slavery has been abolished. But that is a new thing. And so slaves were considered under the family government. So if you were a family that owned slaves, that would be part of the family government. Slaves, obey your masters, which is the head of the household. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. The family is a governmental unit. And God has entrusted the family, the oldest institution on the face of the earth, the backbone of all human civilization. When God made the world and he called it good and he made the garden, the first thing he instituted was a married couple with submissive authority roles. And he said, be fruitful fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. It was the family that was called to cultivate the earth. The family is the most important government on the face of the earth. It is good and glorious government. And there is real legitimate authority in the family. We also see in scripture there is legitimate church governance. What you could, if you want to use the fancy seminary word, it's ecclesiastical governance. The church has real authority. The book of Hebrews tells congregations, obey your leaders, submit to them. Paul tells Titus, or forgive me, Timothy, when he instructs him in preaching and how to become a pastor, he says, teach and rebuke with full authority. We see in the book of Acts, when deacons are established, there was a controversy in the church. There was infighting in the church, and the elders, the apostles, instituted deacons, and the deacons had the final say. We're going to do this, we're going to do this, and the people were expected to obey. There is a sphere in life that belongs to the family, and that's their area of governance, and the government shouldn't, the civil government shouldn't come into that, and the church shouldn't come into that. And there's a sphere of life that belongs to the church. And no father in here gets to say, well, I'm the head of my household, so I'm going to dictate what we do in the church. You're not the authority in the church. You're authority in the household, but not in the church. There are separate spheres of authority. There's certainly some overlap to all of these, but God instituted family governance for a particular purpose, church governance for a particular purpose, and then there's the last one, the one we typically think of when we hear the word government, and that's what we call civil government. The civil magistrates, that is the government over the public Life, the secular government, the government that regulates the rules of society. So we have these legitimate governments. Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, the civil government is not a bad thing. Such as this necessary evil. Paul says it's a good thing for our blessing and for our protection. So you submit to them and you pay taxes to them. So all of these governments are instituted by God. God gave us the family. God gave us the church. God gave us our civil magistrates, and they're good and they're glorious, and we need to lead with submissive hearts. Our first and foremost disposition is to be thankful for them, to be grateful for them, and to submit to them. But there's one very important thing we need to keep in mind. As I just said, God gave them to us, which means they are all derivative authorities. They derive their authority from something greater. The only reason wives should ever submit to their husbands is because God says so. The only reason children should obey their parents is because God says so. The only reason we should delight in civil governments is because God says so. So you see, it's actually God who's the true, singular, absolute authority, and then he delegates authority to these other institutions, and we obey them But if there's ever a conflict, we have a trump card. 
If the derivative authority, if the lesser authority rebels against the greater authority, the one who gave authority, and we are left to pick between God and this instituted derivative authority, we always choose God. God alone has unqualified authority. Meaning, you obey God and that's the end of the story. There is never, ever, 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 ever an appropriate time to disobey God. Never, ever. He has absolute inherent authority. You always obey God. These derivative authorities have a qualified authority. We obey them, but it's not absolute. You say, I don't believe you. I think the Bible tells us, submit to the government. We need to submit to them. Jonathan didn't. Samuel didn't. And by the way, I'm not just talking civil government here. Jonathan disobeyed his dad. Michelle disobeyed her father. I'm not just talking about the civil government. All governments have a law above them. Jesus at his ascension said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is Lord over Congress. Jesus is Lord over your household. Jesus is Lord over this church. He is Lord of all things. He is our ultimate authority. So what does that mean? That means no father, no husband, no parent, no master, no pastor, no deacon, no governor, no president, no prince, no king has the authority to make you break God's law. And don't ever think that God would ever be on the side of those who want to break his law. Psalm 94 verse 20 asks the rhetorical question, Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? I love that phrase in the ESV, those who frame injustice by statute. We have these rulers who take injustice and they frame them into law. They make unjust laws. They make sinful laws. They make evil laws. And Psalm 94 is rhetorically asking us, are those people, when they do that, are in that process, are they allies with God? Are they friends with God? Is God on their side? And it's asked rhetorically because the answer is implied, no. Those who frame iniquity with, or those who frame iniquity with statute and justice with statute are not allied with God. God never condones sinful, unjust laws, and he does not call us to obey sinful and unjust laws. Let me try to put it very, very bluntly, not bluntly, clearly. When any human authority commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, we have a duty to obey God and not them. So our obedience to God is both active and passive. If God says, go and do this, and any earthly authority says, do not do that, you disobey the earthly authority. That's active obedience. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. But there's also passive obedience. If God says, don't do this, and then a husband commands his wife, go and do that, she must say no. We do not do what God forbids, and we do not forbid what God has commanded. There is kind of a premier text I want us to read where we see this example. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. If you have a Facebook, I'm sure you've read this a million times in the last two years. I don't always think that this verse is applied appropriately online, 
but it means something. It has a meaning, and it has application, and we need to take it seriously. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. The religious authorities of the days have arrested some of the apostles because the apostles are preaching against the established religion. Verse 27, And when they had brought them and set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we have a legitimate ecclesiastical authority, and that is established in the book of Acts, by the way. You you can find Paul very clearly establishing the high priest as a real true authority. This is a real church authority, the high priest. This has been established in the Old Testament. This is a legitimate authority. And he, this legitimate authority has told a legitimate subject, have we not given you this charge? We've given you this edict. We've given you this law. And yet here you continue to disobey it. And what's Peter's response? Because you're trying to forbid us to do, from doing exactly what God told us to do. We want to submit, we want to obey, but if you are going to command us to not do what the Lord Jesus explicitly told us to do, we're going with Jesus every time. I'm going to obey God and not man. We have this example from the apostles. Now, he's not saying we never obey men. He's not saying that. But he's saying when men and God contradict, when men rage against God, we have the trump card and the ultimate authority. And I just want to remind us that many believers have been in this awkward, painful, difficult position. It's not just Peter and the apostles. It's not just Jonathan and Samuel and David and Michal. The Hebrew midwives learned this lesson well when they disobeyed Pharaoh's order to become abortion doctors in Exodus 1. Rahab learned this well when she refused to turn her fugitives into the police. Daniel and his companions learned this well when they refused the Babylonian king's orders to worship an idol. The early Christians, whom Romans 13 and 1 Peter was written to, learned this well when they were forced to rebel against Nero Caesar and not pay homage. The reformers had to wrestle with this issue on a deep level as they struggled to reform the Roman church. As a matter of fact, I want to read a quotation to you from Martin Luther. He wrote what's called an open letter to Christian nobility. He wrote this long, beautiful letter to the leaders of his day. Now, his his day was complicated compared to ours because these would have been the church leaders technically, but the church and the state were a little bit more blended then than they are today. So this is kind of like writing to a middle group that's both a church and civil authority. But this is very much him writing to the, 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 the civil government in a certain sense. He is writing to his civil magistrates, and he says this in that letter, among many other things. Speaking of this unjust ban that the government issued, that he did not believe they had the license or jurisdiction to issue, Martin Luther says this, Indeed, they should be severely punished because they blasphemy, blasphemously misused the ban 
and the name of God to support their robbery and with falsely devised threats would drive us to endure and to praise such blasphemy of God's name and such abuse of Christian authority and thus to become in the sight of God partakers in their rascality. It is our duty before God to resist it. It is our duty to resist it. What is he saying? The nobilities have abused their authority. They have abused their authority. They have blasphemed God and they are robbing and blaspheming and abusing and they are trying to get us to become partakers in that. They are trying to get us to become complicit with that. They want us to be blasphemers with them, to be rascals with them. And Luther says, no, we now have a duty to resist this. The reformers wrestled with this. This continued into the Puritan movement as they struggled with the Church of England. This continued into the Christians who came to America and fought the Revolutionary War in rebellion to Great Britain. Now, I'm not saying all of these later examples did everything right. I'm just trying to point our attention to this is an important issue. And this is an important foundation stone. It's vague, I know. It's broad, I know. I know this doesn't help. You've probably got all of these specifics. Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And and it may not address those in specifics, but we need to at least be able to rally around this broad starting point, which is that, yes, the Bible calls us to obey our fathers and our parents. It calls us to obey our civil magistrates. It calls us to obey our pastors. But we need to establish this broad principle that that is not unqualified. There are legitimate times when their authority needs to be resisted. We might disagree on when those times are, but we need to at least agree that they can happen. That's the first principle. The next ones will be much shorter, I promise. Number two, oh, actually, let, let me say this. this. This concept of understanding the role of the civil magistrate is built into our confessional standards of a church. To become a member, you sign confessional standards, and the Westminster Confession f- phrases it, though it's in our confessional statement this way. Civil magistrates protect the church that they may not interfere with her. The civil magistrate may not interfere with the church so that Christians shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. What's our confessional statement saying? God has given orders to the church, mandates to the church, and it is the civil government's job to establish a society that protects those orders, that helps us to flourish in those mandates. The civil government does not have the authority to come into the church and cut off worship and tell us how to worship and tell us when to worship and what to do. That's not the business of the civil government. There is a line between church and state, but what you will most often find is it's usually the church not crossing that line. It's usually the state crossing that line. That that phrase is thrown into the face of Christians every time they try to claim that Jesus has all authority over in heaven and earth. Separation of church and state, separation of church and state. That phrase is not even in our constitution. And the first person to use that phrase used it in a letter because he was upset that the government was trying to control the churches. He was saying there's a line, and he was telling the government to stop crossing it. And that's what our confessional statements say. We have a a mandate as a church, and we are going to do that mandate. And it is the civil government's job to make sure that we can honor God and pursue his mandate without being afraid that you're going to punish us or threaten us. That's our confessional standards. 
There are lines of demarcation. There is authority the civil government does not have. And so, when they command us to sin, we must resist. Principle number two, the church has the responsibility to continue to show honor to those we disobey. I believe we see that all throughout 1 Samuel 19. The way Jonathan respectfully, calmly, graciously confronted his father. The way David refused violence. David refused to fight back. There was no conspiracy theory to kill him. There was no gossiping about him. Crude, coarse name-calling. They resisted, but they showed honor. They showed respect. We hear this Second, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We can honor the authorities even when we have to disobey them. Even Nero, one of the worst leaders in all of human history, the Christians were called to honor him. This is also part of our confessional standards. Westminster Confession says this, It is the duty of the people to pray for magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute and other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for conscience' sake. We are not anti-government in the Christian church. And so here's, uh, as we process this concept of honoring, here's some of the questions I want you to think about in, in our very divided time today. If you feel that there are things in society right now that you cannot obey, I want you to at least please do this. Have this question on your head. How can I honor the authority above me even in disobedience? How can I show respect? How can I give Roswell an example? How can I give my community an example of what godly, respectful disobedience looks like? I like to think of it this way. Christians need to have sanctified disobedience. One of the things that makes me so uncomfortable is when I see in our, in our politically divided life today where there will be an issue that many Christians resist and rebel against and there are many non-Christians who are like-minded with them and so they rally together and they come together and we have Christians and non-Christians rallying against the government and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. That's fine. But it makes me uncomfortable because I want to think if we have Christians and non-Christians coming together, I want the non-Christians to see something different in our resistance. If we look just like all of the non-Christian resistors, then is it really sanctified? If you have to disobey, I want us to set the example for what Christian disobedience looks like. I want non-Christians to see we're kind of on the same team, but we're kind of not. Because that's the case. We're kind of not. Jesus says, whoever is not for me is against me. Those people are against the most important thing in the world to us. I don't care what they feel about masks if they hate Christ. They're not our friends. They're not our allies. Now, it doesn't mean we can't partner together with unbelievers and do things. I'm not saying it. But again, all I'm trying to say is there has to be a way, even if I can't give you the specifics now, there has to be a way that people see there is a difference in the way the Christian church is responding to this and the way the unbelievers are responding to this. I want people to see that. Those, those people agree with me that this is wrong, that the government's wrong, that that father is wrong, that that pastor is wrong, but man, these Christians are still going about this differently than me. That's what I hope happens. We have a responsibility to show honor to those we disagree with. Third point, we have a responsibility to be a prophetic voice to the authorities. Why was John the Baptist beheaded? John the Baptist got his head cut off. 
Why? One time I asked that question to a group of Christians and they said, for preaching the gospel. I said, kind of, but not really. John the Baptist got his head cut off because he stopped his gospel ministry to tell King Herod that his sexual sin must be repented of. John the Baptist felt that his thriving ministry Remember, they didn't want to kill John the Baptist because he was so popular. They were afraid of a riot. He had a thriving ministry. The guy baptized the Lord Jesus, for goodness sake. This amazing man of God with a thriving ministry threw it all away because he said, hold on, guys, our governor's immoral and I need to tell him. Can you imagine the Christians today telling him to stay out of politics? They're unbelievers. You can't expect the unbelieving world to live like Christians. Just focus on ministry. Focus on preaching the gospel. And John said, this is part of ministry. This is the job of the Christian church. We are the moral police. It is our job to call the world to repentance. And that includes fathers. And that includes pastors. And that includes kings. This is our job. This was Jonathan's response. Jonathan could have just taken David and run away. But he decided to stand up to his father with grace and respect and love and gentleness. But he stood up and he spoke the truth to his father. You may not do this. This is immoral. That's our job. People, not in a violent sense, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, authorities need to fear the Christian church. When a, when a husband is beating and abusing his wife physically and emotionally, he needs to fear the Christian church. We're coming after you. Abusive husbands need to be afraid of the Christian prophetic witness. We will call you to stop abusing your authority, to repent of your sins or face judgment. Fallen, abusive, spiritually manipulative pastors need to fear the Christian church. When they abuse their spiritual authority, when they abuse their churches, they need to be afraid. The prophetic voice is coming. John the Baptist is coming. And our governor needs to fear us too. Not physically, but because we are unafraid, no matter, what no matter what party line you fall to, no matter who you voted for, we are calling all the world to repentance. And it is our job to be vocal about that. To call one another to repentance and faith. It is our job to, the culture loves this phrase, speak truth to power. King Herod didn't like John the Baptist. And I'd be willing to bet that if John the Baptist resurrected today, our current president, our sitting president, and our, the governor of our state would not like John the Baptist. But let me tell you something else. I'm not sure our former president would have liked him either. Let me be even more offensive. I'm not sure we would have liked him. I'm not sure John the Baptist would be okay with the sins in my life that I hope, I hope no one calls me out for that inappropriate joke. I shouldn't have made that joke. But people don't want to hurt my feelings. They don't want to talk bad to their pastor, so they're not going to call me out on it. John the Baptist would have called me out on it. I don't think we would have liked John the Baptist very much. Because he calls all men to repent of their sins and believe. Kings and those in authority, lay people. We have a job to be a prophetic voice. And by the way, why do we call it a prophetic voice? Why do we say that phrase? It's because that's what the prophets did. You read the minor and the major prophets. Their primary role was to speak to the covenant community and call them to repentance. And it oftentimes meant standing up to the kings. 
Because the king of Israel and the king of Judah was more times than not wicked and unjust. And the prophets were willing to put their lives on the line to stand up to the kings, to stand up to fathers, to stand up to political leaders and religious leaders and leaders of all kind and say, repent and turn from this. That is our job. And can I just say, you know, there's always a danger in a sermon like this of just looking like a patriotic rah-rah, and I'm not trying to do that. I believe that America has many sins, both in our present and our past, that the Christian church needs to be very vocal about. I'm not trying to just wave an American flag here, but I will, I refuse to let political pressure push me into a corner of being ungrateful. We are not to be ungrateful. So can we just in a moment of gratitude, thank the Lord for the blessings that we have in this country to make our voices known? We have an opportunity to make our voice known in many ways. We have an opportunity to speak at city council meetings, city council meetings, to write letters to, ro- to local representatives. We have the opportunity to vote. Do you know how radical that idea? You go back in time, 500 years, 600 years, 1,000 years, you go to all these other countries and tell them, by the way, in the future, there's going to be this huge global leader and people actually get to vote for the leaders. That would blow their minds. We have many, many ways, legal ways that we can honor our authorities and and, and pursue legal, respectful means to make our voices heard. We have the right to freely assemble. We have freedom of speech and freedom of the press. There are so many blessings God has given us to make our voices known. I would encourage you, what giftings has God given you and what are some of these avenues that if you are upset about things, how can you pursue and make your voice heard? We have amazing ways and responsibilities in this church, in this country, forgive me, to make our voices known. But no matter how we do it, it is our job to call people to repent and believe, no matter who they are, whether they're in this church or outside of this church, whether they have great authority or no authority, we prophetically call the whole world to come to Christ. Fourth and final principle, we've learned that we must resist authorities when they command us to sin. We've learned that we must continue to show honor and respect, have a sanctified disobedience. We've learned that we must speak truth to the authorities. Last, the church has the responsibility to allow for liberty of conscience on the unclear issues. Unfortunately, not every issue is as black and white as it is in Exodus 1, go kill that baby. Not every issue is as black and white as 1 Samuel 19, go kill that innocent man. Some of the issues, contemporary issues of our day are more complicated than that. And there are Christians who love God and who love God's word who see these things differently. And they, and they debate and they wrestle. And my admonition to us as a church is to read Romans 14, to read that great chapter about liberty of conscience, allowing them their conscience, allowing us our conscience and not trying to be their judge and not rushing to judgment too quickly when other Christians disagree whether or not this particular issue is a time for resistance or not. That's not to say there's not a right answer. That's not to say we shouldn't pursue the truth in these areas. We should. We should love each other and debate and discuss, and we should try to come to unity. How can the church, how does the church respond to our day? But when there are debates and when people are reading scripture and we're trying to work through this, during that time, the glue that keeps us together is Christian liberty. I would call us to respect one another and to not cause other to stumbles, stumble and to allow them their convictions and allow yourself your convictions, but all of us need to be ready to stand before God for our convictions. 
If you want to wear a mask in this church, great, please do. If you don't want to wear a mask in this church, don't wear a mask in this church. But be ready to stand before God and tell him why you did or didn't. You will stand before God. That's what Romans 14 says. On some of these more difficult issues, we, we, we have to show each other grace as we work through our disagreements. We have to allow others the liberty of their conscience. So I hope those are helpful, broad principles for how the Christian church, for how you as an individual believer responds to the authorities in their life. Your parents, your husbands, your pastors, your governors, your presidents, Congress, whoever it may be, whoever it is that has legitimate authority over you. I hope that you would seek to obey them, to be submissive to them, and to love them, and to thank God for their authority, but to be ready to respectfully disobey if you must, and to allow the liberty of conscience for other Christians who disagree with you, and to speak the truth to the world. Let me conclude with another quote from Martin Luther, and then we will sing. He says this very briefly, Christ has set us free from human laws, especially when they are opposed to God and the salvation of souls. 